0: a little taste of heaven, amen, to be able to sing together like this, these great songs of redemption. Well, Phil Johnson really needs no introduction to most of you here at Calvary Bible Church, and certainly I rejoice in the gifts that God has given him and his faithfulness in serving Christ down through the years, co-laboring with my friend and mentor, Dr. John MacArthur, and my... We've all feasted upon grace to you for years, right? And I was telling the folks, if you weren't here last night, I used to get all of those little cassette tapes. And I, I remember it, it, it was it was kind of traumatic the day that I took all of those boxes and threw them away. Uh, but now, and then we went to, to, to CDs. And now, I don't know if you could even buy a vehicle with a CD player in it anymore. Everything's digital. But we are so thankful for... Uh, The Ministry of Grace to You and and the books that have come out of Grace Community Church and and, uh, Grace to You with Dr. MacArthur and of course Phil has been an integral part of all of that and we've enjoyed sweet fellowship with him here. I hope you, if you weren't here last night, you can go online and you need to hear what he said last night because this morning is kind of part two of that and so I hope you will do that. And then also after the service, uh, we will go together and we will eat over here so you'll have an opportunity to interact with him a bit more. So brother, come and share the word of God with us. And Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you, and it has been a privilege for me to be here. I, I, I love your pastor and uh, uh, know many of you too with the various connections around the country and it's been a great weekend for me, and I almost hate to see it end. Last night, we looked at the incident where Peter walks on water, and and here's Peter getting out of a boat, walking on water, and the Lord rebukes him for the smallness of his faith. And today, I want to turn to the next chapter, Matthew 15. We read it this morning, to look at a singular incident in the earthly life of Jesus. Matthew 15, we're going to start in verse 21. Our reading was a little bit... Bigger than that. Here, Jesus commends a woman for the greatness of her faith, and she's a kind of an annoying woman as far as the, the uh, disciples were concerned. They were annoyed by her. And Jesus commends her for the greatness of her faith. And it's an interesting narrative because here we meet this desperate mother whose, whose faith is truly great. And we also get a look at Jesus in a way we have never seen him before. This woman has a demon possessed daughter, and she seeks Jesus' help for the girl. But in this instance, the Lord seems uncharacteristically aloof and abrupt and even apathetic about this poor woman's plight. This is not how we know Jesus to be. And in fact, if If Jesus is known for anything, it is his gracious compassion for afflicted people. You see that at the end of our scripture reading this morning, that he healed everyone. Isaiah 42 verse 3 is that famous messianic prophecy that is quoted verbatim in Matthew 12 verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. That is a prophetic description of Jesus tender grace. The smoldering wick refers to the flax in a lamp, the wick when it's used up and burnt out, it begins to smoke. You can always tell when a lamp light is about to expire because the wick starts to smoke and smolder and you'd normally just snuff it out and refill the oil in the lamp, trim off the burnt portion of the wick and then or else put a whole new wick in and then relight the lamp. A reed is a symbol, of, always in Scripture, a symbol of weakness. It, it was, a reed was a hollow stalk that came from a grass-like plant that grows along the riverbank. A reed is very weak and brittle, but you can whittle little holes in a, in a reed and make a little flute from it. And shepherds would do that and use the, reed, use the flute that they made from the reed to calm the sheep. And in fact, to this day, reeds are used to make the part of the mouthpiece in woodwind instruments that vibrates. And when they wear out, which they do easily when you use them, you just can snap them in half and throw them away. Clarinet reeds are sold in boxes of ten. And shepherd's flutes rarely lasted more than a day. And so when they'd wear out, you just break it into go get a new one. And so the point of this prophecy a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench is to show the tender compassion of Christ. He always dealt with broken and used up people, not by discarding them, but by healing them, by renewing their strength so that they would mount up with wings like eagles so that they could run and not be weary, so that they could walk and not faint. And you see this, for example, When Jesus encounters a man who's just totally insane, living in a graveyard, naked, cutting himself with stones, and because all because his mind and body were were possessed by a whole legion of demons, and Jesus, you remember, cast those demons into a herd of 2,000 pigs, and in the very next scene, you see that man delivered, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. That was the way of Jesus. Instead of rejecting or condemning severely broken people, he delighted in redeeming them. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's John 3, verse 17. And uh, Luke nineteen ten says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, Jesus often had harsh and dismissive words for scribes and Pharisees and and others who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. But to sinners who confessed their guilt and sought freedom from the bondage of sin or, or relief from the bitter consequences of sin, Jesus always offered redemption, and he did it tenderly with such grace and compassion that his enemies actually scolded him for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And that was an accusation Jesus accepted gladly. He came, after all, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who were oppressed. And so when the Pharisees grumbled and challenged Jesus about being a dinner guest in the home of notorious sinners... Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And and this was, I think, in some ways, Jesus' most surprising and memorable characteristic. This is what made him stand out, even in his own time as a, a religious leader almost every time you see Jesus dealing with someone from the outside who's outside the circle of acceptable society he is tender and compassionate and friendly and warm and approachable and in fact Jesus is usually the one who reaches out like the the woman at the well or the man who was born blind in John 9 Jesus is the one that initiated those contacts you never see him turning away anyone who comes to him for help or healing, except here. Just a chapter before this, Matthew 14, 34, uh, you you, you read that uh, Jesus and his disciples came to land at Gennesaret, Matthew 14, 34, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So he had crowds of needy people always pressing around him, and he always healed all of them. It wasn't that he picked a few people here and there. He healed them all, Luke four forty. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Matthew 4.24, they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew 12.15, many followed him, and he healed them all. So the Gospels repeatedly say this, there was no one he would not heal. It was one of the unique and outstanding characteristics of Jesus' ministry. He simply did not turn people away. It didn't matter how loathsome or guilty or socially unacceptable a person might be. Jesus always received those who came to him seeking mercy. He said, come to me all who, are, who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And so this vignette that we're going to look at this morning puts Jesus in a light that we've never seen him before, and you'll never see him again like this, looking for all the world as if he is detached and distant and even derogatory towards this woman who comes seeking his help. So let's look at the passage. And here's the context. Jesus has just had this major public conflict with the Pharisees. These powerful religious leaders are following him around Galilee They are desperately seeking a reason to accuse him. They keep condemning him for not following their Sabbath rules and not observing all the extra biblical rules that they had made for themselves regarding ceremonial cleanness. In the previous chapter, Matthew 14, that's the feeding of the 5,000, the incident we looked at last night. And Matthew 14, verses 19 and 20 say this, Jesus broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. Notice, nothing there about any kind of ceremonial washing. There weren't any wet naps passed out with the food. And so at the start of Matthew 15, our chapter, some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus, and notice, coming all the way from Jerusalem, so this was an official delegation of Pharisees, most likely sent from the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And at that point, Jesus unleashes one of his angriest diatribes ever against the phony public self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Verse 14, for example, he says this about the Pharisees, Let them alone, they're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And he basically writes them off. Let them alone. That's the biblical equivalent of forget them, ignore them. They are headed for destruction. That's what he means when he says they're going to fall into a pit. It's the bottomless pit. This is one of the earliest in what became a long series of public denunciations and open conflicts that Jesus had with the Pharisees. He aimed these long, angry lectures against them, and it becomes a consistent theme through the Gospel of Matthew. And in fact, that's the thread that includes those words about the unpardonable sin in Matthew 12. You remember, I hope, that his warning about the unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was actually aimed at these guys, these phony public, uh, phony religious leaders who who fully understood that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that. And they said, well, what are we going to do? Because if we just let him go, everybody's going to believe in him. So they knew who he was, that he was the true Messiah, but they rejected him anyway. And they did it with such force and finality that they had already, by Matthew 12, decided to put him to death at their first opportunity. That's the unpardonable sin. They knew who he was, and they rejected him anyway with finality. So Jesus' long war against these Pharisees is going to culminate in chapter 23 of Matthew. Again, this is a theme that runs through Matthew. Chapter 23 is a, a, a chapter-long Jeremiah against the ruling religious elite. And it ends with this summary judgment in Matthew twenty three thirty eight, where he says to them, your house is left to you desolate. Now, from early adolescence, when Jesus got separated from his earthly parents in Jerusalem, until that decisive moment at the end of Matthew 23, Jesus had always referred to the temple as my father's house. Do not make my father's house a place of trade. And, and now suddenly... Speaking to the Pharisees, he calls it your house. Your house is left to you desolate. And then he departs from the temple for the last time ever, leaving it devoid of all heavenly glory, bereft of any divine presence, spiritually desolate. And he gives it to them basically. Take it, it's yours. And then actually within a generation, that temple was utterly destroyed by the Roman army and it has never been rebuilt to this very day. And it's clear that this was an important theme in Matthew. These interactions with the Pharisees troubled and exhausted Jesus. Don't forget, Jesus was truly human. And in his humanity, he fully experienced all the normal, non-sinful weaknesses of human flesh. Hebrews 4.15, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He had similar infirmities. He grew weak. He, he, he grew weary. He got thirsty. He became hungry. He felt the depth of sadness and the cares of earthly life, just like you and I do. And he needed rest, just like you and I do. So that run-ins like this with the Pharisees left him mentally and emotionally and physically spent. We know that because on several occasions, he took time off from public ministry, or tried to, in Mark 6.31, for example... He says to the disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. But look what happened, verse 33. Now many saw him going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So he couldn't get away. Something similar happens in Mark 1, after Jesus heals a leper, and he tells the man, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And then the very next verse says that cleansed leper went out and began to talk freely about it, like you would too. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So that even in the most desolate places, Jesus couldn't get any rest. Multitudes followed him everywhere, it made it impossible for him to take time off from his public ministry. And so here in Matthew fifteen, after after the feeding of the five thousand, after that run in with those Pharisees who had come all the way from Jerusalem just to oppose him, he withdraws quietly with the disciples to a place near the coast of the Mediterranean, outside the boundaries of Israel. He's left his home country now, Matthew five twenty one, or, or fifteen, twenty one, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. That's north of Israel. That's the land that today is is part of Lebanon. But it was known as Phoenicia in Roman times, and it was a thoroughly Gentile district. So that going there was a way for Jesus to escape the throngs that he faced everywhere he went in Israel. And it was all done very secretively. By now, Jesus was desperate to get some time away, so he probably traveled with just a handful of his closest, most trusted disciples, and they went under cover of night. And he manages to arrive in the region of Tyre and Sidon without any crowds following him. He wasn't there to preach or to do any kind of ministry He went there in order specifically to rest, to recover his strength so that he could minister more effectively. And by the way, that's a good and wise thing to do. There are always, you know, overzealous people who feel guilty taking time to rest. But Jesus, who was the embodiment of godly zeal, didn't have that perspective. He took time off. The parallel passage in Mark chapter 7, verse 24 says this He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So that somehow, even in that remote region, Jesus was recognized by someone and identified, and word leaked out that he was there. And Mark's gospel says this happened immediately, as soon as he got there. And this time, though, it's not a large multitude. It's one very noisy and persistent woman, and she shows up and interrupts Jesus R&R. She's a mom with a severely afflicted daughter who is in bondage to a destructive demon, and this desperate mother is relentless. Matthew 15:22, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And the verb tense there means that she was persistently, unceasingly pleading like that, yelling like that for Jesus' help. Now, bear in mind this scenario here. Jesus isn't a house. It's a secluded house. He's, he's there by himself, even with disciples standing guard outside. He's trying to get some sleep or, or no doubt spending time alone in prayer, as was his custom. He needs to recharge his energy so that he can have the, the human strength to face everything that he knew lay ahead. So this was a time of rest that he desperately needed, and it was long overdue. His heart was burdened and heavy. He had just emerged from this exhausting conflict with that powerful group of Pharisees. And while he's secluded himself in this house, the disciples apparently standing guard outside to make sure that nothing and no one interrupted Jesus' rest. But this one woman absolutely refused to take no for an answer, and she simply would not go away. And notice, even though she calls Jesus by a distinctly Jewish title, O Lord, Son of David, that's a Messianic title. She was nevertheless a Canaanite woman from that region. That's how the Jews of Jesus' day would have referred to a Phoenician woman, a Canaanite. The early Canaanites, you know, in the Old Testament were, were people who were driven from the Promised Land and, and mostly wiped out because of their extreme wickedness. But by Jesus' time, it was the descendants of the Canaanites Uh, who had become the Phoenicians, and they were a tribe of merchants and seafarers, and they were Gentiles, not known for being religious at all. The Jews considered them unclean, and the fact that they called them Canaanites was uh, uh, sort of an expression of contempt for them, because this was not a region, by the way, where uh, typically a Jewish religious leader would take his disciples for a vacation. It'd be like be you like know, a bunch of pastors going to Vegas or something. It didn't feel right. <clears throat> Not the place you'd go because it was unclean. But that actually made it a place where Jesus might go and get away for a time from the incessant conflicts with the Pharisees. They weren't going to follow him there. And the pressing demands from those crowds of curious and needy people who followed him everywhere, here at least he could have some peace and quiet or so it seemed until this woman showed up. And she's continually crying, it says. The word in the Greek means to cry out. She's yelling, in other words. The word crying, she may have been weeping as well, given the circumstances, but the stress of this word is on the volume, not the tears. She is shouting to Jesus at a volume that is intended to penetrate the walls of the house. It's the kind of howling, high-volume shriek that is hard to hear, and it grates on your nerves. And although the disciples were apparently tasked with guarding Jesus' solitude, they even got so sick of this that they had to interrupt Jesus to beg him to respond to her. Verse 23, And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now, Jesus response, including his initial lack of any response whatsoever, is what might strike you as the most remarkable thing about this scene. It is remarkable. But there is one thing even more remarkable here, and that's what I want you to see. But first, we need to work our way through the narrative. The three stages in Jesus dealing with this woman, and all three stages show us Jesus in an uncharacteristic light. And so you follow me as we work our way through this text, and let's consider each stage in the shocking interaction Jesus has with this woman. Stage one, he seems to disregard her. His initial response to this woman's pleading is total silence, verse 3, but he did not answer her a word. Augustine famously said of that text, that verse, He who was the word spoke not a word. You know, the only other time you find Jesus refusing to answer is when he's put on trial. Matthew 27, verses 12 through 14. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. At least seven times scripture tells us that when jesus was charged by those who finally crucified him he opened not his mouth now normally when needy people sought relief or healing you'd find no one more responsive than jesus this is the only time we are ever told that anyone's pleading for deliverance or help was met with silence only time and yet This is a more common experience than you might deduce from the gospel narratives, right? Because all of us have experienced this for reasons that we know are good and gracious. God sometimes delays his answers to our prayers. Jesus himself taught that although God hears and answers our prayers, we need to be persistent in praying. He told this parable in Luke 11, verses 5 through 9, to illustrate that very point. He said, which of you has a friend which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine is arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him, and he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And so I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. You get the context there? He's saying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, even if the answer doesn't come immediately. There's another parable in Luke 18 with a similar lesson. Luke 18, one through 5. In fact, mark your place here in Matthew 15. And let's look at this passage together. Luke 18, and I'm going to start in verse 2. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then the lesson, as Jesus goes on to give it, is that God is not like that unjust judge. He answers not merely because we persist, but because he does love both justice and mercy. He is eager to answer. Here's the postscript to that parable of the unjust judge. Jesus says, verses 6 through 8, hear what the unjust judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And yet, despite this reassurance of God's willingness to answer our prayers speedily. It does, doesn't it? Sometimes seem to us as if our prayers are met with silence and delay. You see, an example of this, my, one of my favorite accounts in the Old Testament with Elijah in the contest with the Baal priests, uh, they, you remember they cut themselves and prayed and never got any answer. Elijah uh, prays for fire from above One simple sentence, and the answer comes immediately. But if you keep reading the narrative, later that very same day, when he prays for rain to break the drought, he repeats that prayer six times before he sees any answer at all. And furthermore, that seventh time he prayed, the only sign that God heard his prayer came in the form of a tiny cloud that was the shape and the size of a man's hand. God's timing, let's be honest, God's timing does sometimes seem slow to us. But remember, according to 2 Peter 3.8, a thousand years is to the Lord as one day. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God makes everything beautiful in his time. His timing is always perfect. But to us, the answers can seem like they're slow in coming. And it sometimes feels like the Lord is responding with cold silence when in fact, he's simply waiting for the perfect time. We're prone to get impatient and frustrated, and Jesus understood that. So what's the proper response when you feel that way? Well, it's the same as Elijah. Keep praying because the Lord loves faith that perseveres. He wants us to be persistent. And in fact, look once more at this parable in Luke 18, the widow who pestered the unjust judge. You you see at the end of the parable how Jesus reminds his disciples that God is not like that selfish magistrate. God delights to answer our prayers speedily. And normally when you read a parable, here's here's an interpretive clue. Normally when you read a a parable, the last line of the parable will give you the best clue about what the central lesson of the parable is. But that's not the case here. In this case, the main lesson of this story is actually given to us in verse 1. I skipped it when I read, but let me read it now. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So that parable is an encouragement to be persistent in our praying. The old term for that is importunity. Importunity, to be importunate, means to be persistently demanding. That is the dictionary definition of the word. Keep asking, keep demanding. And the implication is that when the answer is delayed we should repeat those prayers with increasing urgency. Importunity in prayer is actually commended in Scripture. It's a good thing. When it seems to us like God is not hearing or he's ignoring our pleas, the right response is importunity rather than impatience. Keep asking. And that's exactly what this desperate mother in our text did, so much that it grated on the ears of the disciples back to Matthew 15. Look at verse 22. She kept crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And the longer Jesus remained silent, the more shrill those repeated pleas began to sound. And I'm guessing she was hollering so loud that the disciples knew, they had to know, that Jesus could hear inside because They went ahead and interrupted him anyway. They figured he can't possibly be asleep yet. Let's just talk to him. And her repeated pleas motivate the disciples to intercede on her behalf. And notice they do it not really out of compassion, but mainly to get rid of the annoyance. Second half of verse 23, his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. So now they're the ones doing the begging. And and don't misunderstand, it wasn't that they wanted Jesus to shoo her away or make her go away without responding to her plea. They could have done that if that's what they wanted. But they were probably thinking, just like the unjust judge in that parable, give her what she wants, if for no other reason than just to shut her up. It's the only way to get rid of her. And only Jesus could give her what she wanted. And so the disciples took the case to him. And in effect then, their prayers, their earnest plea to Christ for peace and quiet, now join in agreement with her prayers for mercy. So now it's a group petition. And amazingly, Jesus still doesn't respond with an immediate yes. And that brings us to the next stage of the drama. Stage one, he seems to disregard her. Stage two, he seems to discourage her. His reply to the disciples' request is, is I think even more stunning and unexpected than his silence in the face of the woman's pleading. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She wasn't a a Jewish woman, remember, she's a Gentile. Jesus says, I was sent only to the Israelites. As if the silence weren't cold enough, he now responds with what appears to be outright rejection. And now, think about this. What Jesus says here is perfectly true. His primary mission was to the nation of Israel. He had come as their promised Messiah, and in almost identical words, when he called the disciples and sent them out on their first mission in Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, he told them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter into no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Because he was coming as Israel's king. He's the rightful occupant, of David's throne and his duty as shepherd to the Lord's people was first to call the lost sheep of the house of Israel Romans 1 the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and Jesus was still in that phase of his ministry announcing the kingdom to Israel so he's speaking truthfully here this is not a gratuitous insult it's not a racist remark This is an honest declaration of what he was called and sent to do. Nevertheless, it's not a truth that's suited to encourage this woman. Let me read what Spurgeon says about that. He says, Jesus announced to her a fact which could not possibly assist or strengthen her faith. Specifically, in fact, he brought up the doctrine of election, More on that later. But I love this, this statement from Jesus, which probably would have come across as a snub or a cold shoulder to the average person. What's remarkable here is it doesn't faze this woman at all. You know, the typical person might have turned away or replied with coarse words or angry accusations. She saw it as an open door and it Perhaps it was literally an open door because, think about it, the disciples had to open the door to this house, this place of seclusion, in order to hear Jesus' answer to their message. She ignores the message and just seems to push past the disciples who were acting as Jesus' bodyguards. But she goes right into the house where Jesus was because it says she falls at Jesus' feet, verse 25. She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. It's the same plea that she's been making, but now she's abbreviated it into the fewest possible words. Lord, help me. You know, this scene is full of pathos, right? Unless you are totally inhuman, there is no way to picture this in your mind without feeling profound empathy for this poor woman. And although Jesus is God, as I said, he's truly human. He was a perfect human, and therefore he's a thousand times more tender-hearted and empathetic than you or I or anyone else we've ever known. And you see this really clearly any other time when people fall at Jesus' feet. Even in Luke 7, when a woman of ill repute anoints his feet and has nothing but her hair to wipe them with, the Pharisees were disgusted by that. But Jesus showed her the ultimate compassion. He forgave that woman's sin completely to the chagrin of those self-righteous Pharisees. And then just one chapter after that in Luke 8, verse 41, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, falls at Jesus' feet and implores him to come and heal his dying daughter. Jesus responds to that immediately. And while he's on the way to Jairus' house, a woman who has been ceremonially unclean for 12 long years touches the hem of his garment. Any Pharisee would have cursed and condemned her for what they would have deemed to be a defiling touch. But Scripture says, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus' response to that woman was likewise. Immediate and tender-hearted daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In Luke 10, he commends Mary for sitting at his feet while Martha wanted to scold her for for not doing her part to, you know, wash the dishes or whatever. In short, Jesus never, ever rebuffed anyone who fell at his feet except here. And now we reach stage three. And this is the most shocking part of this surprising drama to review. Stage one, he seems to disregard her. Stage two, he seems to discourage her. Now, stage three, he seems to disrespect her. When this woman, kneeling at his feet, finally begs him to his face, Lord, help me, his reply sounds like a deliberate insult. And you know, throughout this entire subplot, Jesus has given every appearance of icy indifference towards this poor woman. His first response, cold silence. Then he gives her a cold shoulder. Now he responds with a cold put-down, or or so it appears, verse 26. And he answered, it is not right to to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, dogs, of course were considered unclean animals. In Old Testament times, no one had pet dogs. They weren't really domesticated in those days. By the 1st century, dogs had been domesticated and and Romans often kept them as pets, Gentile Romans. I've seen a I've actually stood on a mosaic in the floor of a home that was uncovered in Pompeii, dug out of the volcanic volcanic ash there, and it's a picture of a dog on a leash with the words in Latin cave canum, which means Beware the dog. It's the entryway to this house. And you see similar warning signs commonly in Pompeii. There are also plaster casts of dogs that died in that disaster. And you can see that the dogs were wearing collars, indicating these were household pets. One other point here. When Jesus answers this woman, he uses the diminutive form of the the Greek word for dogs. It communicates the idea of small dogs, lap dogs, pet dogs, which maybe it mitigates the insult a little bit, but most people would say it's still not politically correct to compare a desperate woman to a dog. My wife would hit me if I did that. And in fact, there are those who try to make this a major point of controversy. I found an article about this passage from the August 2011 issue of that bastion of political correctness, the Huffington Post. And the article is written by a woman whose bio says she's an ordained Lutheran minister. And she basically treats Jesus as an unenlightened bigot. In her account, she says the woman is the hero of this story. And in the end, she says, Jesus saw and heard a fuller revelation of God in the voice and the face of the Canaanite woman. That's a direct quote. She claims Jesus was forever changed by this encounter. And she actually uses these words. Again, I'm quoting her. Jesus finally heard and came to believe. It's one of the worst pieces of Bible butchery I've ever encountered from someone who claims to be a minister. And in fact, if you can read Matthew's gospel and take this in context and come to that conclusion, your reading comprehension skills are pathetic. But, but it is true that likening her to a dog sounds like an insult. But I want you to notice the Canaanite woman herself didn't take it that way at all. She doesn't argue the point. She doesn't become indignant. She doesn't even disagree with the characterization. In fact, she affirms it. She agrees with Jesus. In fact, I love how the King James Version translates this text, verse 27. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She affirms what he just said. Truth, Lord. And by the way, here's an example of why I don't like the NIV. They make it sound like They they treat this as a paraphrase, and they make it sound like she's disagreeing with Jesus. Here's the NIV, verses 26 and 27. Jesus replied, "'It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs.' "'Yes, it is, Lord,' she said. "'Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table.'" They make it sound like she's contradicting him. But that is not how this conversation went. And this is crucial to the point of this story. This is why Jesus commends her faith at the end she freely admitted the truth of what he said. Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Or as the ESV has it, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. There is a confession of faith in those words. Jesus calls her a dog and she barks in agreement. It's an amazing exchange. She doesn't argue. She doesn't contradict him. She just keeps pressing her case. Nothing he could say or do would deter her. Not his silence, not his apparent rejection, not even this barbed comment. She absorbs what he says and she interacts with it, pressing her point. She doesn't deny or take offense at his classification of her as a dog. She's like that publican in, in Luke eighteen thirteen, who stood afar off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. This woman is confessing her own uncleanness. She makes no self-defense. She just pleads for mercy. And she seems to have a, a rudimentary concept of the doctrine of common grace. Jesus had brought up the doctrine of election. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are the chosen people, in other words. She's not stymied by that. She seemed to understand The principle of Psalm 145 verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. That's the doctrine of common grace. God's mercies extend beyond the elect and they're well meant mercies. There is no creature under heaven that has not benefited from the mercy and kindness and long suffering of God. In fact, verse 16 of that same psalm, Psalm 145 says, You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. So she's thinking, okay, I'm not one of the chosen people, but I can still plead the mercy of God. That shows amazing faith on her part. By the way, notice she knew Jesus' messianic title. Maybe she knew other truths from the Old Testament as well, like Psalm 86, verse 5. God is full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. And I love the way she picks up on Jesus' imagery. She paints a perfect word picture of the principle of common grace. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And And that analogy is loaded with significance. That is how common grace works. We had a beagle for several years, and he became a little lethargic in his old age. But there was one thing that always made him active. Whenever he heard someone preparing food in the kitchen, he was there. You know, he might have been upstairs asleep in a corner. He wouldn't answer the doorbell or anything like that. But if the refrigerator opened, he heard it. And he would be there in seconds, hoping for a scrap of something to drop to the ground. It didn't matter how small it was or whether it was dessert or vegetables. If it fell on the ground, he was on it. And it made him supremely happy. If he got a crumb of a stale Frito, it made his day. That is the same spirit this woman is displaying. A scrap of divine grace, that's all she wanted. Surely that's not an unreasonable request. And then we get to the good part. In the final verses of our text, the final verse, Jesus responds to her finally by removing the mask of his aloofness. And it was a mask all along. He knew what he was doing, and there was a strategy to it. John 2.25 tells us, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And in John 16, 12, near the end of the upper room discourse, Jesus tells his disciples, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So he clearly knew what this woman could bear, and he simply took the opportunity to put her faith on display, mainly, I think, for the instruction of the disciples. And it's recorded here for our benefit as well. And so we see, after all, Jesus doesn't break the bruised reed, and he doesn't quench the smoking flax. But this woman wasn't a bruised reed. And in fact, Jesus pays her a profound compliment that might have made even Peter and the other leaders among the twelve a little bit jealous because remember what we talked about last night. Jesus often chided them about the smallness of their faith, and he would frequently say to them, O ye of little faith. He said it just before he stilled the storm in Matthew 8. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? He said it in the chapter we looked at last night, just before our text, when Peter begins to walk on water but starts to sink, Matthew 14, 31, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He'll say it again one chapter after this encounter with the Canaanite woman, when the disciples forget to bring lunch and, and Jesus catches them discussing amongst themselves and they say, we brought no bread. Matthew sixteen eight, Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, Why are you talking about that? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's what he says to his leading disciples. And by contrast, this woman shows no doubt whatsoever. It is amazing, isn't it? And Jesus' answer to her in verse 28 is one of the most profound words of commendation he ever gave to anyone. And he answers her prayer too. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. It's an amazing story, isn't it? And she's an amazing woman. And as far as we know from the biblical record, she is the only person Jesus ministered to on this whole trip to the region of Tyre and Sidon and i think in the from in jesus human mind he went there to get rest in the eternal plan of god she was the real reason he went there in the first place the rest and refreshment were merely temporary benefits one believing soul is of eternal value and this story is a beautiful reminder that the good shepherd will always leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. I think this woman is admirable. Three reasons I'll give you. For the thickness of her skin, for the tenacity of her faith, and for the persistence of her praying. Those are rare qualities even in the church today. They're clearly unusual qualities in Jesus' time as well. She had an amazing capacity for doctrinal understanding and moral clarity as well. You see that in the fact that she's not stymied by the doctrine of election. She doesn't get derailed into some theological argument. She seems to grasp the principle of divine grace. She, She knows and affirms truth when she hears it, even those hard truths that seem to put her in a difficult spot. You never once hear her trying to make any argument against the truth. She never tries to deny the inconvenient truths. She saw with the eyes of faith that God's mercy doesn't nullify his truth and vice versa, and she understood that divine delays are not the same as denial. She just kept pressing. In short, she laid hold of God's grace by faith and refused to let go. And her persistence was the proof of her faith. She is, by the way, one of only two people whom Jesus ever commended for the greatness of their faith in the biblical record. The other one, interestingly, was a Gentile as well. It was the centurion who you meet in Matthew 8 and Luke 7. And there in Matthew 8, verse 10, Jesus says of the centurion, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So... I said at the start, there's one thing in this story that is even more amazing than the way Jesus treats this woman. That's what it is. It's her faith. It's amazing. She's a Gentile from a pagan land. Faith like hers was rare even in Israel among the chosen people, and that is one of the key lessons here. And it's the reason that Matthew, who is writing for a Jewish audience, makes this story So prominent. The whole account parallels in many ways the story of Elijah who sought refuge from Ahab in the attic of a woman who lived in this same neighborhood, basically. Jesus makes that point in Luke 4, verses 25 through 27. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. God sometimes chooses from non-obvious places people to be his elect. Here God chose this lone Canaanite woman to be the recipient of saving grace, and she exhibited a degree of faith that was unheard of in Galilee and Judah. And so she stands as a rebuke to the multitudes in Israel who had such weak faith. She's a rebuke even to the disciples because their faith was comparatively small and fragile. And she's a rebuke to you and me as well because, because of the ease with which we grow discouraged and we stop praying or we start manipulating or or scheming rather than pl- praying, even though we know God has promised to answer if we don't lose faith. She's a reminder that we should pray without ceasing. And our prayers should be persistent and earnest and offered relentlessly with stubborn tenacity because that is the kind of faith that pleases God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our prayerlessness and for the frailty of our faith. Forgive us for doubting. Forgive us... For so often ceasing to pray. And hold us close, Lord, even in those times when heaven seems silent and closed to our prayers. Keep us seeking you in faith. And our hearts do echo the cry of that man in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 9. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Give us grace to lay hold of your goodness with a tenacity that will keep us from falling. Multiply grace in our lives for the strengthening of our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.